0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Bhagavato Sambudasa Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One Namo Sadantwa
1: the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter.
0: Now that I've come
1: to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shifu shangren, goe Dada Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra Lecture. And uh, we're here... Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and tonight is the indeed it is the eighth of August, and we're going to be lecturing on a text called the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Ten Grounds Chapter. And uh, Michael, would you be kind enough to hand me one of those gadgets? Thank you. All right. For those of you who are joining us online. Welcome, wherever you might be. We uh, got a late start tonight because of the. Uh, this is just one of those days when you put your best efforts forward, and and uh, the universe doesn't always respond the way you would have it. Um, let's uh, recite the name of the sutra and the Buddha's and Bodhisattvas is here on the front cover of your text. And we'll recite that seven times and get going. actual comic scene um, just before I came down to uh, start the lecture. I had gone back upstairs to get uh, the uh, setup for the guitar, which we're going to use later. And the phone rang right then. And it was one of those moments where you say to yourself, answer it, don't answer it. Answer it, don't answer it. Answer it, don't answer it because it was time to start the lecture and I knew everybody was waiting I thought, maybe it's Michael Michael and and, uh, better answer it so I picked it up and I'm on one foot one foot is already out the door and I'm like heading downstairs and the voice says "Uh, hello I'm uh, I'm looking for a Buddhist temple (laughs) yeah you found one you know, it's like, uh, I'm looking for the one that serves food on Sundays. <laughs> well, that's not us. Well, you know where they are? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, that's That would be the Thai Buddhist temple. Yeah, they're down the street. Let's see, what's their address? Ah. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, you're going, okay, just don't fight it, don't fight it. So I had a nice conversation with the guy who needed to know how to find the Thai temple and I Directed him to the place in Russell Street next to the Tool Lending Library, the Berkeley Public Library that's right there on Martin. Is that the one that's on Ashby? No, it's not on Ashby. It's close to Ashby. Oh, okay. And you know anything about them? Do you know what I... I <laughs> fine. It's good. So I got him there, and he was grateful. We had a good conversation. So. But it did slow me down a little bit. And uh, because I have images of the Buddha lecturing the sutras for the first time, he sat down. <laughs> That's all it took. He sat down and used his mind and spoke, and we're still listening to the things he said. That was all it took. Was his mouth and the ears of the disciples. And I look at us and we've got our solid state tape recorder with our nice boom mic and we got to put that in over there and then we have the uh, guitar pickup which will allow the guitar to be heard and then we have the online computer which will allow those people from far and wide to and then we have the camera here in front and then we you know and we have two languages and we have a text that we are adding pages to as we go and i think life is good how could it be better so the only proper attitude at this point, is gratitude. To be grateful and say what, how wonderful this all is and how much um, I'm personally pleased to be part of this process called putting the words of the Buddha into the air in two languages and occasionally in three, uh, in Vietnamese as well as Chinese and English. So. That is where we are. We just chanted the name of the sutra and you have in front of you the uh, Flower Adornment Sutra's Ten Grounds chapter. I'd like to invite you to turn to page 64, 64 and 65. We're down at the the second half of the page down below. There's are there any more? You find them. There's we have some in front here, which means you actually have to come sit in front while everybody stares at you. Oh my gosh! <laughs> there we go. All right. We need we're uh, because this chapter is really long, and uh, we're translating as we go, so we're adding to our bilingual text as we go. We translate a bit and add a bit. That's why we're, it's an imperfect number of texts here. But as folks come in, if it would be okay if we direct them forward to, these, to the various benches that have the text. All right, we're going to read over on page 66. But let's start on page 64. Um, I'm going to read the Chinese line by line and invite you, if you'd like to, to recite along with me. Fu 如是无怨 Guangda. Okay, that's good. Over to the right, disciples of the Buddha. Of the Buddha. These bodhisattvas, These bodhisattvas further, make the further make the following reflections. The Dharma of the Buddhas is as profound as this, as quiet, as still and tranquil, as empty, as free of marks, as free of wanting, as undefiled, as limitless, as vast and great as this. For folks who might be joining us for the first time or who haven't been here for for a few lectures, this is called the Ten Grounds chapter. And in this chapter... Can everybody hear me in the back okay? Loud enough? Good? In this chapter, um, we're in the middle of a conversation. And the conversation is between... um, A bodhisattva, and a bodhisattva is a Sanskrit word that means an awakened person, an awakened being. You could also say a selfless being, somebody who's really gotten rid of that pesky view that uh, I'm really in the center of the whole universe and everything circles around me. That's not a helpful point of view but it's a point of view that's very easy to to hang on to. So this person has gotten rid of that point of view and they're awake, they're, they've awakened to instead, they've actually replaced that view with a more accurate view which sees the the deep interrelation between not just human beings but all beings. They start perhaps with meditation and notice in their meditation that the the earth, air, fire and water that make up their bodies are shared equally with everybody who's ever drawn breath. No different that their bodies are made up of the same stuff. Literally. Uh that's one place that you start to develop that view. And then they might go into, through their meditation, the view of focusing on emotion and recognizing that the same fear that they feel from time to time is fear that you can find in, in literature, find it in theater, find it in, in music, you can find it in the healing arts, you can find it in it's the source of most of the crimes that start the penal system or the justice system. You can find it written into national f- policy, government policy, on and on and on. So that single movement of emotion in the human heart just gets played out into, into so many of our institutions and our experiences that we share, uh, not just fear but joy. they find joy in their heart and then trace it out, you know, you get the point. So bit by bit, through looking within, through that act of focusing on their own experience as a human, in a human body, they if they're looking clearly, the meditation helps because it calms everything down and it lets you take a deep look. They see that indeed it's the same, not different. Their experience is the same as so many other living beings. And if you do that over time, you really get rid of the false view that somehow I'm separate, broken from, apart from, unique and isolated and lonely and alienated and all the things that, that uh, tend to make life a uh, series of afflictions running from trying hard to blot out the pain of loneliness, the pain of not being understood, and all of the, the coping mechanisms we have for those wrong views that rise, such as alcohol, for example. Uh, every culture has their own national liquor. And drinking it is largely to erase that painful view that I'm broken and separate from everything else. So a bodhisattva is somebody who sat down and said, no, I'm going to get to the heart of that. I'm going to really keep looking until I find out for myself whether that's really true or not. And lo and behold, as they look, they discover kinship. They discover identity. Meaning, same, identical with not just humans drawing breath now, but you can extend it and say, my grandpa, my grandmother, my great great grandmother, my great 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 great, start adding them up, grandparents, all shared the same earth, air, fire, and water. And this is where it gets really interesting. They also shared something that's inside that body. That gets interesting because that view of the thing that animates the body is that's a juicy insight because we give it a thousand names and in in this context in our sutra, they would call it the the Buddha nature, but that's one useful name it doesn't have to be that name we can call it the the great Spirit we can call it uh, the soul. Mm. All of those words are imprecise. They don't actually hold it because it's not just one thing. Uh, the Chinese describe it as san hun qi po, that we actually have three physical souls and seven spiritual souls that make up the soul. So that's another story. But anyway, the bodhisattva, to get on with our sutra tonight, the bodhisattva is somebody who uh, looked clearly got rid of that view of the self being uh, separate and broken and replaced it with what the Buddha would call right seeing, clear seeing, which is the, um, the identity and the fact that we're, we're all related. A thought in my mind touches the minds of everybody who's, mm, who's on the network. Who is that? Well, that's everybody, for good or for evil. Uh, If you get on BART and you're down there in that car and you're going under the bay, that's always, I've never really relaxed whenever BART goes under the bay. I've always can't avoid that thought of what if, you know.
0: What what if if.
1: the earth decided to quake right then, you know. (laughs) All of the the, uh, sci-fi films you've seen. Apparently there's one coming down the pike, which is really scary, which is a movie called 2012. I'm not advertising it, but there's... It's by the same guy, the same director who did uh, Ice Age. Not the funny Ice Age, but the the one, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So anyway, I always have those fantasies of what if. And right at that time, if there's somebody in the train who is slightly strange, the entire car immediately registers. There's somebody who's talking to themselves loudly. Um, Speaking of which, I'm out on a limb trying to describe... Uh, the fact that thoughts touch, and I haven't got to the text, so I need to keep track of the the lily pads that I walked on to get where I am. So, uh, I was on a Greyhound bus, um, heading from Raleigh, North Carolina, to Asheville, North Carolina, just one week ago today, as a matter of fact, and there was one of those guys on the bus. Greyhound buses are quite a state of mind. Um, if anybody's working on a sociology degree, I'd recommend that you spend as much time on Greyhound buses as you can. Call it research. You can probably get funded for it, I think, because it's, it's rich in research opportunities. Um, this gentleman decided that, uh, that I was a perfect opportunity for him to release some of his tension. So he's going, What's this Pope?" I won't tell you the whole story because it's not appropriate for a monk to be speaking, but he's, Hey, Pope, what you doing? You're too many people. Look at you. you got a crocodile dundee hat. you got that Pope robe and you got sweatpants on. What you trying to pull? Who you think you are? You know, I'm, you know, you know, how you doing? You know, and everybody in the back's going, <laughs> you know, having a great time. So at least I served a purpose of, letting him release some pressure. And he was having fun with me. And uh, he finally said, well, he says, no, are you all right? He says, I just do stand-up. That's all. I just do stand-up. So he apologized. And then turns out that the guy was really upset because he pulled out his lawsuit and he was in the midst of a lawsuit. So the whole bus had to hear the story of his lawsuit. And he was... Suing some hip hop uh, celebrity who had apparently stolen the lyrics to the song that he wrote. And the whole bus heard the whole story, and everybody's going,
0: you
1: know, because he had that kind of presence that shares all of his feelings with everybody and loudly. And you could just see the impact of this guy's state. He was upset, and everyone was embraced, you know, like that. But in the end, he said, thank you all, i got to get off now, God bless. He said, and got off the bus, and you could just see. Everybody in the bus felt the, the tension go down, because this was a hair-trigger personality. But Anyway, so the point is that if we are like a bodhisattva, um, also awake to that deeper connection, then uh, we can use our minds the way we will later in this transference process to send out good energy. And likewise, using that touching all minds to bless and to to do as this fellow did. He completely removed all of his prior tension by sending good wishes. Bless you all. He said, God bless. Got off the bus. So, um, that Vision of the interrelatedness is useful if you want to send out wholesome, wholesome wishes. You equally influence all people whose minds you touch. All right. So, this is a bodhisattva. That was all to describe what a bodhisattva might be like. Somebody who is awake to the deeper connection between all beings. So, the text says, the bodhisattva further bodhisattvas further Think like this. Here's our sutra. What's neat about this text is it takes us into the mind of a bodhisattva and says, here's what bodhisattvas think like. Here's how they think. So it's really opening a little window in the mind of a bodhisattva. It says, all Buddha's dharma, and this is called proper dharma, meaning the actual way the Buddhas teach, is. Like this, and then we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten ways that it is. Ten ways that it is. The Bodhisattva is saying, he's praising the Dharma and saying the Buddha's teaching is so. And then you get ten, ten things that it is. And the way the sutra is set up, the first one is always the kind of the general the summarizer and the other 9 are the specifics the details so let's do it the buddha's the dharma of the buddha's is as profound as this okay there we go we'll start with just that one the chinese is ru shen it means really very deep the the dharma of the buddha's is profound Now, there's one way to look at this, which is the Bodhisattva is just praising the sutra. He's praising his own text. Mm. When we read a sutra, we're actually hearing the Buddha's voice. Um, He, in, in fact, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, who is the one standing, the wooden image standing on the altar, he is, this is more detail than we need right now, but he is not the actual speaker of the sutra. He um, energized another Buddha to speak for him. This, this avatamsaka was spoken by the Buddha's retribution body, his reward body. Nonetheless, um, it, it, it serves as the Buddha's wisdom speaking this text. He was speaking it. He spoke it not to sell books, certainly, not as an author, but as you could almost more as a doctor than anything else. Someone who is saying, Hmm, over here is um uh, jewelweed. Jewelweed is a wonderful pot herb. If you you can eat it Raw, if you want, you can eat it slightly boiled or steamed, and it will benefit you in these ways. Over here is golden seal. Golden seal is a very potent herb. If you take the root and steam it, and then dry it and powder it, it will draw wounds tight and uh, purify. It's a vermifuge. It it gets rid of bacteria, etc., etc. He, the Buddha. Is describing the Dharma very much like herbs to a physician. It's used to heal. It's used to end suffering and pain. And so, when we listen to it, that at least I'll just talk personally. When I listen to it, I I take a different attitude than if I were reading, for example, uh, obviously a political platform where someone is trying to convince me of that they're right and I should support them for the various reasons. The Buddha is not here to sell the Dharma. And the, the voice in the Sutra is not there trying to convince us any more than a doctor would try to convince you about the healing powers of mm, let's say mint. Mint has this quality. Uh, if you put a piece, if you crush it and put it in a toothache, it'll make your toothache hurt less because it's a coolant, it's a refrigerant. You know, the the doctor is not trying to convince you. He's not selling you mint. He's saying this is the effect on the human body. The Buddha is describing the Dharma the very same way. He's saying, you know, this will affect you this way. So his statement, the Buddha Dharma is so profound, is it's, it's a fact beyond a fact. It's, this is the case. The Buddha Dharma is really profound. Um, why is that true? If Buddhism were a teaching by revelation, for example, let's name a teaching by revelation. How about the Ten Commandments? We're all familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The story goes that Moses went up to the mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments. This is how the fundamental teachings of the Jewish scriptures go. And no reason to doubt it for a minute. Uh, But that's revealed. Why are the Ten Commandments the case? Because God says so. Okay? and here's the person who got them, Moses. Moses is qualified to be a prophet, because he's the prophet. He carried those down. He had that experience. God gave him these truths. Okay. The Buddha Dharma is different, in that there was no revelation. They weren't given to the Buddha. Where do they come from? Where did this wisdom come from? It came from a person, a human. In this case, it was the Prince Siddhartha sitting down saying, I'm not going to leave this tree until I wake up. 49 days later, he did it. That's how our founding story goes. The Buddha Dharma is a teaching by realization, not revelation. It's not revealed, it's realized. In other words, the Buddha sat still, watched his mind settle and clear until he got to a point where he saw the truth of his nature. So it's the human mind clarified and purified that produced the Dharma. What's interesting is we only have the testimony of our Buddha to go by. But he explained that every person who purifies and clarifies, makes pure and clear their mind to the same level, will see the same thing. So in that regard, the Buddha Dharma is very scientific, i.e. the phrase is, inter-subjectively testable. You test it, you get this result. A different subject tests it, they get a different result. Very um, empirical in that way. And the Buddha would say, here's how you do it. Do this, do this, do this. And you'll see these things. Because why? They're really there inside the mind. These principles are really there inside the mind. That's why they're, quote, profound. There is a level in the mind whereby, if you look deeply, this will, this will be there. This principle will be there. Um, it's not the Buddha's opinion, it's his experience. And people who meditate to that level report the same thing. That's what's so interesting is that this teaching has been around for 2,500 years And it's been through so many cultures, so many languages, so many centuries and millennia. Everybody says the same thing about it. That when you make your mind quiet to that level, this is what you find. So, that's a little different than revealed. It didn't depend on, the Buddha would never, ever, ever say, Take it from me. What would he say? Try it yourself. That's a hallmark of the Buddha's teaching: is the matter of faith. I think last week Marty was here lecturing. The matter of faith is different, different story. Uh, it's not faith again by revelation. God gave it to Moses. The Buddha gave it to us. Not the Buddha saying, "I saw it." Don't believe it until you discuss, you find it believable. And if you do, it's yours. I'm very much like a map holder. I'm handing you a map. Go walk. If you walk this way, you'll find it," said the Buddha. So the Buddha's Dharma is profound," he said. "Rusher, Shanhan. It's as profound as this. Um, last week I went I wasn't here last week. Uh, Marty was lecturing because I was in North Carolina near Asheville, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Beautiful, beautiful part of our continent. If you've seen uh, the movie Last of the Mohicans, that opens up with those very mountains. Um, the book Cold Mountain by Fraser, that novel that was popular a few years back, that uh, was written in the very spot where I was, just 30 miles down the road. Uh, that the the movie the movie Cold Mountain, oddly enough, was shot I guess in Bulgaria, so it's not Cold Mountain got it's cold around the world. But this uh, it was written about the mountains near Asheville. Asheville appears in that in that book. Um, there's another uh, shoot. There was another film recently that uh, uses the mountains of Asheville, the mountains around Asheville. The, Blue Ridge, and this is also called the Bible Belt. Now, Asheville is a unique kind of city. The way Berkeley is the People's Republic of Berkeley, right? Kind of, we secede from California. We, we have our own planet here in Berkeley, Planet Berkeley. But uh, likewise, Asheville, North Carolina, is a little different than the rest of the, the neighboring cities. The uh, uh, I didn't raise many eyebrows in Asheville, walking around in my robe. But I was told not to go too far out of Asheville, because there were cities uh, on all sides where I would cause folks concern, because they'd never seen anything that looked like me. They had no way of understanding where I, what planet I dropped from, or what you know, whether I was going to be speaking English or whether I might steal their babies and eat them. They didn't know, and it was a good idea not to give them trouble. So they said, just you know, go out in daylight only. Don't go out after dark, and don't drive off the road. So, so um, the uh, thing about the Bible Belt is that it's conservative. There is an interpretation of religion there that is, you know, we we all know. No surprise. People tend to take uh, their views very seriously, and they don't allow much flexibility that views tend to be pretty rigid about the way uh, the world is made and it comes largely from the Bible and uh, there's not much room for conversation that's the Bible bill and I have uh, been teaching Buddhist-Christian dialogue up at the local seminary, Graduate Theological Union, for nine years now, and have taught a lot about conversation among religions. I participate in interfaith. I do a lot of talking to non-Buddhists. In fact, the Saturday night lecture that we do is pretty much my only time during the week when I actually talk to Buddhists. The rest of the time, I'm talking to people who have, uh, for whom it's all new. Buddhism is unfamiliar. And by the way, feel free to close those windows if you feel chilly. There's no reason to leave those wide open if you feel cold. So um, I consider myself mm, certainly uh, prepared to talk to folks who, who see me as quite strange, quite unusual. Um, especially because when I did a pilgrimage for uh, two years plus up and down the coast of California, I was proselytized every single day by people who saw me as a sitting duck and a great opportunity to practice their skills at saving souls. That that was a chance to test out theories about... uh, Salvation, etc. So I've I've got my merit badges in in uh, dialogue, you could say, all the same, even though that is true. To go and teach meditation for musicians in the Bible Belt, uh, near Asheville, North Carolina, was quite a step. And that was the course that I taught last week: meditation for musicians. And uh, there were uh, uh, over two hundred. Students there, of which I was one fellow student, but I was also a staff member. And nobody knew quite how it was going to go to have a Buddhist monk teaching meditation in the Bible Belt in Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm here to report that it went very well, way better than most folks thought possible. And the first morning when the uh, classes met, we had 40 meditators. Uh, If you go to my blog, uh, Dharma Forest, type Dharma Forest into Google uh, or into your search engine, uh, you'll see photos of that first morning where people came from everywhere to find that Stillness to find that sameness to f- to look into this experience of being alive and discover what could be discovered and one of the major tools that's helping so many folks uh, turn inwards is yoga no doubt about it yoga has become as American as sushi and American as martial arts. Yoga is everywhere now, and people are doing yoga at the workplace, yoga at hospitals, yoga, you know, uh, yoga retreats, and yoga at churches. Amazing, lots of yoga. Another thing that I discovered people share, especially old baby boomers, is TM, Transcendental Meditation. Really went wide back when. And I had these good old boys come up to me and say, Yes, yeah, sir, I learned TM back when it was free. Remember that time? That's before they started charging for it. I got my mantra. I recited it. I recited it up and down. Still do. you know. Still do. It kind of fell away from a little bit, but I still recite. And uh, I'm looking for something more. What's the next step? I had a lot of folks come up and talk like, about their mantra. People practice TM in the military. Believe it or not, TM was was has gone very wide, and um, I'm I never got initiated in TM. I was already a Zen sitter when TM first started. But I remember in Berkeley in the 70s, I was here when TM was um, hot. It was new and fresh, and you could go to the center on Shattuck Avenue and get initiated for free. Um, the uh, I actually have some relatives who went on into the Transcendental Meditation Movement under the Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi, and got involved in the, uh, their university in Fairfield, Iowa. They've, they've done very well, and they've made a real contribution. Um, so that was quite wonderful. And here is why I'm telling the story in relation to the Buddha Dharma being so profound, is that the thing that united, I think, everyone was the thing that brought everyone together was a sense of wanting to go deeper because the soup the surface these days makes less sense. It's very hard to make sense out of what comes to us via Fox News and CNN and The Chronicle and MSNBC and in, in a day when John Stewart is the most trusted man in news, you know it's hard to make sense. You know, John Stewart in The Daily Show is the spoofs. He, he acknowledges that he is the anti-news, right? He is, he is there to uh, poke fun at the pretenses and he does a very good job. But he is distinctly cynical, and that he is now considered to be the most trusted name in news says something about how people have given up trying to make sense. Instead, we need to go deep. We're looking for, some, we're looking for stability somewhere else. And I was really gratified to find out that so many folks from Raleigh-Durham, from Charlotte, from Orlando, from Atlanta... From New Jersey City, agree that there is value in looking deep within. That was really gratifying to see that it's not geographical, that it's not that we here in the People's Republic of Berkeley are unique in our interest in looking into ancient wisdom, but it's worldwide. Not only nationwide, but worldwide. And uh, I have put to rest all my stereotypes about good old boys. Immediately, being you know rednecks who uh, want to beat me with the Bible, not a bit. That is not the case. That uh, your body size, your 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 accent means nothing in terms of where your mind looks for stability, looks for insight. Folks are looking deep now because the outside just makes less and less sense every single day. So. The Buddha Dharma is there. It is as profound as this. Ru Shi Ji Jing, as quiet and still and tranquil. Ru Shi Ji means as this, such as this. So, as what? Mm, it just means really. This is an underscore. You could get rid of the Ru and you'd have the same impact. Of the text, the Buddha's the the Dharma that the Buddhas teach, is profound, still, quiet, tranquil. Why is it still and tranquil? I think because. It's to appreciate the Dharma, you have to be quiet and subtle. Once you are, then you can move. If you only move, you'll miss the experience of the subtlety of the Dharma. Once you catch it, there's nowhere where it's not. And it's not a question of speed or slow, deep, or profound, deep, or, or shallow. What do I mean by that? It's that the Buddha Dharma is carried in thoughts. It's carried in thoughts. And thoughts are very much like what? Think about the ocean. A wave is really there. If you don't believe it, just go to Mavericks. This drive up and down the coast. Go from Santa Cruz up and some of the biggest waves are at Mavericks, Half Moon Bay, um, and then on up to Princeton and uh, Pacifica, on up, up to Devil's Slide. You find some of the world's biggest waves break right here within a 40-minute drive of where we're sitting. And yet... Those giant, giant waves are, they'll vanish. They'll go right back to the ocean that bore them. There's no difference between the biggest wave and the ocean, except now they're in shape and now they're gone. Wait a minute, and those waves are back to flat water. There's no difference at all in substance between a lucid pond that you can use as a mirror or even a, a an ocean cove pond and those crashing breakers off of Maverick's Point. No difference. So there's no difference in the thoughts in the mind that emerge as drop dead you rotten dirty blah 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 blah. That's a thought in the mind and that Profound, profound, still, quiet insight where you see that you really owe your parents profound gratitude. That lucid thought where you see the connection between generations and your family is the same stuff as this anger thought or a joyful thought or a thought of boredom or a thought of excitement. Same stuff. To see that, you have to be still. Otherwise, it's easy to think, oh, I'm my thoughts. I'm just an angry person. Or, I'm just as bad as they always told me. I'm just worthless. I'd be better off dead. Right? What's that? thought? Actually, it's a connected kind of a knot of thoughts, often. But the substance is the same. As the thought that says, I'm going to become a Buddha. That's considered the king, they say, the king of all thoughts. The Bodhi Resolve, the Bodhicitta, the Putishin. That thought where you see your potential for ultimate wisdom. And know it's yours, not anybody else's. That is just the same. It's no different. So that to get to that level of quiet, still, tranquility, requires stillness. To see it as it really is, which is same stuff. Just expressed with connection. What makes the difference? The Buddha would say, and this is just a classic teaching of the Dharma, false thinking and attachments makes us miss the subtlety, the stillness and the tranquility. In other words, the view that I love this, I hate this, those thoughts, first the I, and then the love and the hate are what block the vision of the sameness. And all the other thoughts too. Those are false thoughts and attachments. Ooh, I love that, but I hate that. And if I don't get this, it won't do, and you're going to pay for it. That kind of thinking breaks up the unity and the view of the, 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 the whole. And most of our lives are passed in the pursuit of what we love and the need to get away from what we hate. Pursuing pleasure escaping pain. The me that's in the middle of that always being pushed by what I want and what I can't stand. That is what breaks up. Those are the false thoughts and attachments the Buddha was talking about that just mess up that vision. Advertising reinforces it. Advertising just gives it a face. Gives it a product. It says you've got to have this or else you're not Hip, you've got last year's. You're a loser. Buy the new one. You're a winner. Score! right? Because, well, you got the thing. Till, oh, I'm sorry, your 3G iPhone is no longer number one. You need an S. Hmm. How about you can upgrade? Just put some money in our hands. So it's really hard in the world to see the truth of that because the marketplace survives on convincing us that we are unique and separate and different and need to own these products to reinforce that identity. Dharma says, tweet! Stop. Not so. Not so. In fact, that will cause more brokenness. It's like honey on the blade of a knife. You lick it, it's really sweet, until you notice you're bleeding. <laughs> so, the Buddha Dharma is, and here are three in a row, Kung wu xiang, wu yuan. These are three qualities that the Buddha described all his teaching as. He says the Buddha Dharma the teachings that, that I discovered through my meditation are what? Dig it. He says, empty. Even though you can get the Buddha's insight, for example, the truth of no self, that you can't find a self, this construct, this me, is not findable. That's a real dharma. That's a Buddha dharma. It's a Buddha's teaching. And the Buddha says, "There you go. It'll give you lots and lots of mileage if you can hang on to that and use it." But when you have that truth, you don't have anything. There's no thing there. Wisdom is is can't be found. Wusha. Wisdom has no no uh, mark, no hallmark. Wisdom has no tag. Wisdom has no color, weight, measurement to it at all. Nothing there. But, boy, it's better without it. It's better to have it than be without it. No, it's kong wu xiang wu yuan. Furthermore, this last one is a little tricky. Literally means no wishing. The Buddha Dharma is free of moving into something else. When you get the Buddha Dharma it doesn't transform into... You, you can't upgrade. The Buddha Dharma is free of upgrades. That's, that's a good description of wu Yin, right? You don't go from 5.0 to 6.0 in the Buddha Dharma. There's no transforming. It's kind, it's, it is unmovable in that sense. When you get a principle, it's as unmovable as this one. Okay, here we go. I'm about to illustrate a principle. It's called Gravity. Right? Do that a hundred times. It's never going to go up. Right? Oh! Gravity principle. This is a made of ebony. Heavy. You drop it. It goes down a hundred times out of a hundred. There's a principle. Doesn't? You don't upgrade that principle. So the Buddha Dharma is that way too. It's empty. There's. N- you can't. There's nothing there. Wuxiang, there's nothing you can name it by other than, I mean, you can give it language titles, but it's not that. And furthermore, you can't upgrade it. It's profoundly that way. Um, that's kind of neat. I mean, I like that, because nobody who has ever practiced the Dharma, has ever gotten anything, even at the highest level. His Holiness, Dalai Lama, he's a visible Buddhist at a high level. What does he say about himself? Simple monk. Simple monk. Not God-king. Not God-king. Simple monk no mistake, he'll say. People call him the God-King. I mean, you know, you put both of the words, put God and King. You know, he says, don't, simple monk. And he's not, that's not just polite shambling. He is a simple monk. Even though he is a Dharma master, he's the the head of the 14th Dalai Lama, the head of the Kagyu's and... And uh, is that? I should be careful. I don't know his, all his titles. But he's also the political head. He wears it very lightly because there's kong wuxiang wuyuan, empty, free of characteristics, and can't upgrade. There's no particular anything that His Holiness got by becoming the 14th Dalai Lama. It's very light, there's no crown, there's no robes. That say that you know. Finally, this you're the only person who can wear this robe. Not a bit. Um, if anything, when you become a dharma master, you got less than before, because you don't have houses and cars and and uh, mortgages and rent payments and such. You and ideally, you don't have as many afflictions and troubles and worries. Would that it were so. But the principle is there. So the Buddha Dharma, these are the things that you know it by. Um, It's empty, i.e. no core, no identity to it. It's got no things that your senses can know, no marks, no hallmarks to it. And you can't morph it into something else. It's not because of the Dharma, therefore you get something else. Not. Not. What else? wuran, free of stain. How do we translate that? Undefiled. It's not defiled by ownership. Um, here, I, here I was in Asheville. In fact, I was at a place called Warren Wilson College where they had the Swannanoa gathering. Swannanoa is the river that runs just north of, or east actually of uh, Asheville, up in the mountains. And here I am, a monk wearing robes, sitting among 200 musicians who gathered, staff and, and faculty and, and fellow students. And they came, there were lots of Jewish friends, lots of scientists, lots of atheists, lots of... Uh, uh, agnostics, and, and uh, it's not easy to be any of those things. In, in a world where you are, uh, in, in the America's South, um, your church is a major identity item. Um, I have uh, uh, friends, uh, African American friends, who say that in the African-American community that you join a church and you will be born, married, and buried in that church. And if you decide that you're going to leave that church and even go to another church of the same denomination, let's say AME or Baptist you have to basically get your passport stamped. <laughs> you don't easily move between those churches. Those communities are very clearly defined, competitive with each other. And uh, if you go from being, for example, Baptist to Lutheran, ooh, you've got a lot of explaining to do. So the, uh, uh, your church identity in America's rural South is very important where, where you showed every Sunday and should you miss church on Sunday oh, oh my the preacher might come around and say missed you last Sunday you know you've got to explain where you were you know. well I know I just I was, you know what?
0: You
1: shuffle a little bit So, uh, anyway, it's not easy to go from one to the other. And so here I was, surrounded by Southern Baptists, Catholics, Jews, Methodists, lapsed Southern Baptists, and uh, scientists, you know, as I say, lots of different folks. And it was very important, as I'm talking about meditation, to... Label clearly what I was teaching as not the property of the Buddha. That meditation is not Buddha, circle R, or circle C, copyright, owned by the Buddha, stamped, right? That the information that I was passing out, the tools that I was making available to these people were. Universal. They were um, what's the word? Uh, common. What is it? If, um, shoot. I just lost it. Online, if you want to, public domain. Pub, not not only public domain. Public domain. Thank you. For saying, public domain is like songs that have gone beyond com- co- copyright. Stephen Foster's songs, you know, Way Down Upon the Swanee River. I think you can sing that without owing royalties to anybody. Now. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, otherwise I'm in trouble. I'll get a letter from a lawyer. That will actually, this, you are in violation of copyright. No, what is it? Not common ground. What, what's it? Um, Creative, Commons. Creative Commons. Creative Commons. Thank you, Rob. Creative Commons is the new online copyright. What I was saying was, meditation this these tools this information that i was sharing was really creative commons license that there is christian contemplation there is jewish meditation spirituality there is hindu buddhist greek orthodox techniques of meditation that are part of heritage learning it's part of being a human to have this knowledge around. I really, really put effort into saying this is not Buddha Circle R so that people could own it. I wanted to get out of the way so it wasn't, oh, we're meditating, we're using Hung Shur, meditation, we're using Dharma Master Shur's meditation. No, not a bit. I'm using the method that the Buddha got out of the way of and said... This is what I did. If you want it, try it. It's yours. If you don't, no problem. You don't, have to, you don't owe me rental fees for these techniques. So that was important to say that. So, Rūshū Wurang, that would be a defilement for me to say, okay, I'm going to teach you the Hengshū Dharma Master, the Dharma Master's Method. That's, that's my new name. Dharma Master's Meditation, Right? capital r and and send in send you can pay it use it through paypal i'd be happy to do paypal or i will just swipe your credit card have a credit card swiper right there by my zafu right that would be a defilement so the buddha dharma is as def- undefiled as this and then last two rushir wuliang rushi guangda measureless vast big Buddha Dharma is measureless, vast, and big. Um, I believe, again, let me say this is not the Buddha's opinion. He's not there to sell us sutras. He's saying this is really how it is. Give an example: cause and effect. Buddha Dharma really teaches cause and effect. By the way, we're on page 64. If you just can, cause and effect is a Some of those sutras don't have all the pages, right? 64. Cause and effect is a universal principle. Cause and effect says, plant this seed, get this result. Actions have consequences. True. The Buddha, again, just saw it. He witnessed it and shared it. Didn't invent it. Didn't own it. Passed it on. This is how the universe is made. So, knowledge of that is really helpful. Cause and effect, what that that takes away from us, if we say, cause and effect is really the way the universe is built, what that takes away from us is fate. You can't believe in fate and cause and effect at the same time. What else it takes away from us is the notion of random chance. That's harder to get our minds around because this is really knocking on the door of how we have built the universe around us. What do we really believe about the big the big picture. Um, It also... it redefines our understanding of who's in charge. This being the era of motion pictures, because we have movies we have common reference points that we didn't have before. Uh, in, since Shakespeare's time, if you could refer to Hamlet and your audience had read it, you had a common reference point. Oh, yeah, the Prince of Denmark. Mm, Macbeth. Oh, we've got the, the tragedy of Macbeth. You could, re- you could mention that and people go, yeah, yeah, nod their heads, right? Mm, how many people read Shakespeare? Not very many. Given the number of people who were illiterate, most were illiterate. Go to China; Shakespeare has less validity as a you know. In to follow that, in uh, what I saw Master Shen use as a common reference point was the uh, San Guo Yen Yi, the Three Kingdoms. Boy, oh boy! If you were of that generation of Chinese who had read the Three Kingdoms literature, man, once you hit that, what was it like? Harry Potter. It was the Harry Potter of that community. Man, oh man. People, Master Hua would sometimes bring out stories from the Three Kingdoms literature, and you'd just see eyes around the room light up, and they would start swapping. Yeah, boy, when Zhuge Liang did that, that was so incredible. Now, if you saw the movie Red Cliff, Right? Anybody see the new martial arts film, Red Cliff, parts one and two are out? That's from the Three Kingdoms. literature. So, we now are in the movie age. And if I mention an image from a movie, you can get people worldwide to nod their heads. Give an example. What are we talking about? Cause and effect. If we believe in cause and effect, which is what an illustration of how the Buddha Dharma is wu liang, guang da, measureless, vast, and great. If I say to you, I'll just give you the image, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Comes from the movie called Wizard of Oz, right? Can I see? How many people have seen the Wizard of Oz or know what I'm talking about? All right. It's pretty good. If you haven't, go find it. Wizard of Oz. It's a book written by a man named Frank Baum, B-A-U-M, made in the film that stars Judy Garland when she was a little girl. Wizard of Oz, really good fantasy. And it came, the, the movie was, was it 39, Yeah. 1939. That was a great year for films. Um, I think Casablanca came out at the same time, I believe. Maybe not. Casablanca was later. Anyway, Wizard of Oz, great film. And I won't spoil it for you if I tell you. If you haven't seen it, maybe I'm spoiling it for you. But there was, there is a moment where the great, all-powerful wizard turns out to be just a guy behind a curtain with a machine. He's making the, the wizard do things and explosions puff and clouds of smoke and stuff. And it's just a guy, and he's a salesman, right? He got lost, like Dorothy did. And uh, so here he is, and he says, pay no attention. Toto, the little dog, takes the curtain and goes, and pulls the curtain aside, and you see here's a guy. Now you can see him. The wizard is revealed. And you pay
0: no attention to the man behind the curtain.
1: Okay, so anybody who has seen The Wizard of Oz goes, yeah, yeah, I've seen that, right? How do we imagine God? Is God kind of like the guy behind the curtain, pulling the levers and making things happen? Maybe. That's that's not how I saw God. I saw God as a, a white guy with a long beard sitting on a chair up in the heavens. You know, I really did. That was the way I was taught it. And you better make him happy or you're in trouble. If he's unhappy with you, you got trouble. So, yeah, but a lot of us, I think, see God as kind of a wizard pulling the levers. Right? So, Wizard of Oz has got some depth to it. How do you conceive of the guy who really makes stuff happen or the woman who makes stuff happen? Doesn't have to be a guy. God might be a she. Might be. You know. Look at Harry Potter. Who's the smartest wizard of all? Hermione. It's clear, right? Hermione's got the answer. So, okay. If we understand cause and effect, it's harder to hang on to the idea of the guy behind the curtain. Harder. What is that you makes you think moves your mind? Okay? So cause and effect has a big impact in our understanding of what fate. What is fate? That's the way, you know. That's the how it is. Can't do anything about it. It's fate. It's fated. Chinese call it Ming.
0: Ku <sighs> Ming. Right? We just everything
1: that goes wrong we just throw it to may Ban You know. No, sorry, Yo <laughs> Fadza. It's not fate. It's not your ming. It's what you did coming back to you. If you hadn't done it, it wouldn't be coming to you. Cause and effect. Okay, that's a really profoundly deep, deep insight. What is it? It's one of the Buddha's teachings, how the universe is made. Here we go again, right? Is that, did somebody else decide that that was going to drop? No, it's a principle called gravity. Heavy, light air falls. So I caused that to happen. But there's a principle that describes it, gravity. You can measure it. You can tell you how fast it will fall to my hand based on the weight, etc. Go out into the thinner atmospheres, take it up in a space capsule, and you go, (laughs) and it floats away. Right? Different. Okay. Cause and effect is one of those wu liang guang da, limitless, vast, and great Buddha Dharma principles. The Buddha doesn't own it. He saw it and described it. This is a collection of the things the Buddha saw and described. He said, take it if you want it. It's available. Do you want it? Do you value it? Do you believe it? Does it work for you? It's yours. That's, That's how these sutras are offered. It's up to you. But that's it's true everywhere. Cause and effect doesn't take a break. Right? Cause and effect does not you don't go into a zone where there's a glitch in the matrix. Remember they're going up the stairs and Neo, the the new Neophyte looks over and sees the cat go by the doorway twice. It's a glitch in the matrix, they reset the computer, right? Come on, you all are cinema literate, right? So, a glitch in the matrix. There's nowhere where cause and effect is not true. It's always true. So, as our Bodhisattva says, disciples of the Buddha, these Bodhisattvas further make the following reflections. The Dharma of the Buddhas is as profound as this, as quiet, still, and tranquil, as empty, free of marks, free of wanting, undefiled, limitless, vast, and great as this. So when we get these sutras, the Buddha is saying, please take it for yours. It's not mine. It's not Buddha Circle R. You don't owe me royalties. But understand that these principles are true everywhere. They will work for you if you put them to work. But what happens when we do that is it does damage to some of our cherished understandings of how the world works. Faith the guy behind the curtain, random chance. Nobody knows. It's just somehow my bad luck. right? Just my bad luck. Nope. But we have been building our minds according to thoughts that we hang on to and that's the way, that's the lens that we see the world through. The Buddha saying, I understand that. I thought that too. Until the Buddha was advanced in his teenage years, he thought that nothing died. Right? The Buddha, the prince, had wrong views. And within a very short time, he got those curtains pulled aside and he saw old age, sickness, death, shook him up, and then he saw a way out. And that was the, the, what set him to cultivating the way. Okay, by golly. we have gone through a couple lines of the Ten Grounds chapter of the Alba We will be doing the same thing next Saturday night here. And uh, I'll tell you what's going to happen after that. It's now nine o'clock. If you could find... <coughs> if you could find your transference of merit sheet, we'll transfer merit first and then talk about what's coming up here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. The transference of merit... The transference works... Remember we were talking about how minds touch each other. You can use your mind as a like a beacon, like a radio tower of good wishes. Please please do make a wish and take the take the goodness that comes from joining together with Dharma friends on a Saturday night and share it. you would like to make that wish that's that's yours to do so